In today's episode, we're going to try to figure out how these planets got us going crazy as Webster breaks down retrograde. We'll reflect on 40 years of HIV and how rest is truly a form of resistance. The podcast that encourages you to know, feel, and do to live your best life. This is Warden Webster. Hello. I was trying to give you a little Maya Angelou at the end. <laughs> Hello, Miss Ward. How are you? Delightful, daring, and delicious. Speak. If you know better, you do better. That's what yeah. she said. Speaking of delicious, I'm just, I just want to kick us off real quick. Because I want to be able to give the listeners, um, our book club members, a little warning. If they have not gotten into our, our <laughs> June book club book, My Man's Best Friend, child. have you started reading yet? No, it's arriving today, actually, because I, I had a, I, was, I put it in the, in my Amazon order that I do every week, which arrives today. So uh, I will begin reading it, but I, I'm very excited based on what you've told me about you reading basically half the book already. I am halfway done. And again, I know we have talked many times, but I do not read. And so for you to pick this book, and my first thought was like, ugh, it's not on audio. And then when it showed up, I was like, all right, let me just, let me just peruse through, you know, see, give this reading thing a try. Then I was 42 pages in. Then I was 68 pages in. Now I'm a smooth 120 pages into this book. And it is a tickle. Did we talk about not, um, about possibly doing a Zane book last time? I don't remember. So we joked about it because mm. I had said that next time I said I had said that I picked this because I didn't think that it wasn't it, that I didn't think it was going to be as raunchy as some other titles. Now, I had said that before reading it, so I don't know how raunchy it is. And but then you told me after reading even the first couple of chapters that you were like, this might be even raunchier. I was sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> me back to Zane okay um so I I am very curious to see how it turns out so far so good there's one or two parts where I'm like meh <laughs> but this book has been keeping my attention to say the least so listeners if you have not picked up this book club book um one you should but also warning it is rated something <laughs> Are you might need a new pair of draws. <laughs> it's, it's hot. You did want a summertime little beachy read, honey. It is hot. <laughs> but I, I approve. So far, so good. And I was able to kind of track down the author using my sleuthing skills and found her Instagram. So, and her page is private, which I think is kind of weird um, for her to be a published mm -hmm. exactly. an author. Um, but I sent her a... <laughs> I sent her a follow request, so we'll see, because I would love to have her on to talk about this here book. We'll see. Yeah. K.L. Collier is her name, and the book is My Man's Best Friend, published in 2013. Grab it. it. 
All right. In this week's Need to Know, Isaiah is going to break down what's going on with these planets that got us all in our feelings because Mer- Mercury is in retrograde again. What is this? Every time this happens, wait. So every time, so I have a friend um, on IG, mostly on IG, but anytime Mercury is in retrograde, he'll send me like a message that's like, how are you feeling? Checking in because the planets are a mess. And I'll be like, damn, is that why I too am a mess? (laughs) But I don't always want to blame it, but these things do seem to coincide. So why? And I know the planets, the universe, the stars are all your things. I was like, let's, let's talk about this. Cause are we blaming Mercury and them when we shouldn't be, when we are just a hot ass mess? First of all, I am so excited. I can hardly <laughs> sit still. So I had been dying to talk about this on the podcast forever, but I try to put things on the arc that I feel like of art is are of interest to me and you. <laughs> and I had no idea you had any interest in this because we could have talked about this on episode one. Cause I live for everything stars and planets. So let's okay. let's start with the basics. So whenever we talk about something like this, we want to bifurcate it because there is astrology and then there's astronomy. And when it comes to the retrograde of the, of the planets and the worlds, it really, they're, both of them are applicable. So first, I just want to just delineate that because I'm going to talk about it from both sides. I'm actually going to do the, uh, the astronomy side first, which is physics. And then astrology is like the, the, what sign you're born in. And we'll do that one second. Okay, so we'll talk about it from both sides. But first, uh, Bianca, do you even know what retrograde means and what that is? Do you want me to like start from literally scratch? So let's pretend like (laughs) I know nothing, just in case there are people like myself who know, like I know it is a mess and then technology don't work and people be crying and there's confusion. So let's start with what is retrograde? Yeah, so we'll get to that. So before we even get into the different sides of it, let me just start with what it re- what a retrograde is. Retrograde comes from the Latin word retrogratus. It literally means backward step in Latin. That's what it means, backward step. So a retrograde refers to when a planet appears to move backward in our sky from our observation on Earth. The planet isn't actually moving backwards because as as you know, that's not how physics works. It's really an optical illusion, Bianca, and it's caused by two things. It's caused by the position of the planets when they're in a particular alignment. And it's also caused by the speed of their orbit around our star. And so there are certain times in their orbits where it looks like from our position that they move backwards in the sky as opposed to moving forward in the sky. So that's what a retrograde is. It it, it means that the, the planets are moving backwards. Every planet in our solar system has a retrograde, okay? But they're on different cycles and the cycles don't match up. Mercury has the most retrograde cycles. So it retrogrades probably three to four times a year, whereas Mars retrogrades maybe once every two years. And so because Mercury retrogrades the most, it's the one that people kind of latch on to as, oh, Mercury in retrograde, blah, 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 blah. When in truth, all of the planets retrograde, and actually right now there are two planets in in retrograde, Mercury and Saturn. Um, But because, again, but because Mercury does it a lot, 
it kind of gets the, it kind of took the, the baggage on. So before we move any further, did I, did I lose you with any of that? No, I am tracking. Um, okay. Yes. Because Mercury's in retrograde May 29th through June 22nd mm-hmm. this time. And it's going to happen like 16 more times. I'm still going to be a mess. Go ahead. I'm following. So the best way, so a, a lot of folks don't, understand how this optical illusion works. The best way to think about what's actually happening, imagine that you're in a moving vehicle, okay, and you're going down your road in your vehicle, and a bus is in the lane next to you, right next to you, and the bus temporarily looks like it's moving backwards when the speed and the timing is just right. If you've ever had that experience where you're in a moving vehicle, and even though there's another vehicle that's moving at the exact same speed, appears to kind of tail you a little bit, that's a retrograde illusion to the eye. And so on a much larger scale, when we look into the heavens and we see the worlds appear to move backwards for a period of time, that's the, that's the same optical illusion that's taking place. Okay? So that's the, that's the uh, uh, astronomy side of it. So now I want to talk a little bit about the astrology side of it, which is the study of how the stars and the planets affect our personalities and our lives. And so astrologers um, believe that the retrogrades hold sway over us. They believe that during these periods of retrograde, that, that this is when Uh, things begin to appear to be out of kilter. And so most astrologers consider the retrogrades to be periods of reassessment and redoing. And because they believe that the retrogrades are periods of of reassessment and redoing, that's why it, it appears to cause chaos in our lives from their perspective. Okay. So all of the things that that you do, waking up in the morning, getting coffee, an appointment, um, da 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 da. When when people say, "Oh God, I forgot I was supposed to do this," and Mer- Mercury's in retrograde, what they're saying is that um, this period of reassessment has them rethinking everything. It reorders our steps in a way. It's almost like a pause on your astrological path. And so as so long as the, as the, as the worlds are moving forward, everything is orderly. In retrograde, by definition, they're moving backwards. And so it's a period of pause and reassessment. And because the stars are reassessing and realigning during the retrograde, it feels to us here that everything's out of kilter. And so that's where this um, this 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 nomenclature of, oh, such and such is in retrograde and I feel out of whack. That's why, because astrologers assign the retrogrades as a period of reassessment. And to them, this explains why our lives don't feel orderly. That makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. So what does it have to do with um, because I also hear like uh, technology is usually a mess. Like my computer is fucked up because Mercury's in retrograde. Like what does that have to do with? So the astrology piece, I get it. The pause, the reset, um, the kind of feeling off kilter, but what does that have to do with, you know, why I'm ready to throw my iPhone? No, not my iPhone. Let me be clear. My Android. <laughs> 
Thank you. So in astrology, everyone has a ruling planet. Mine is Mars. And so uh, when Mars is in retrograde, for example, that would have more of an influence on me than it would on someone who's ruled by Venus or Mercury. If your ruling planet is Mercury, then when Mercury goes into retrograde three or four times per year, a big dude, astrology says you can expect to have a little bit more of a influence on on your life, et cetera, et cetera. So just like the planets control us in our charts, they control different things in the universe. I'm sure you've heard Venus being the planet of love and being the ruler of kind of like that sphere. Uh, Mars traditionally being known as the as the ruler of conflict, so on and so forth. So they the planets do have certain characteristics. And because of that, certain things can be out of kilter because they are doing certain things according to astrology, according to the charts, so to speak. So uh, Saturn's Saturn is Capricorn's ruling planet. I am a Capricorn, the best sign. Okay. So and Saturn is currently in retrograde. Right. And as you said that, I said, Oh, I so there am you have a mess. <laughs> but the, the, the great thing about retrogrades is that you can, you know when they start and they end. Right. And so you can know when Saturn comes out of its retrograde. And so you should expect to feel normal <laughs> once she completes that cycle. And then you can also look up when she will enter the next retrograde. You can literally plan your out of kilter moments because these things are all on cycles. So those are the times where I need to increase my therapy sessions because <laughs> I don't, well, I, I saw, so I, again, astrologers would say, that's the time you want to reassess. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily need to do anything different, but you just want to take stock. You want to pause. Mm -hmm. You want to think about the way that you're, you're approaching everything and just think, could I do it a different way? So sometimes I'm just going to stick with the same example I used. Sometimes a missed appointment is not about missing the appointment. It's the universe's way of saying, is there another way to do this? Is there a better way to do this? Could this appointment be, could you approach this in another way that, that satisfies what you're trying to do? So to us, because we are routine focused and we always think about, you know, this is, it has to be orderly. Everything has to be orderly. In the universe, things aren't always orderly. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, most of the times they aren't. And so this is the universe's way of saying the, the unorderly is okay. And you can be okay with that, with that disorder. Um, and so that's how I think of it. So I just, um, Saturn is in retrograde from May 23rd to October 10th. I feel like that is a long ass time. <laughs> it's a fairly, it's a fairly wide orbit. So yes, uh, you can expect the planets in the outer realm to be, to have longer retrogrades. So, mm, 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 mm. Um, so how do we, so I like the idea of <clears throat> the fact that we can, we can know, right? Like we can go online or we can find out when planets are in, in, in retrograde, et cetera, and kind of I don't want quote unquote plan accordingly. What would you recommend to folks when they are, when their ruling planet is in retrograde or when Mercury is in retrograde, if that is the planet that seems to impact more people or should they be more so concerned about their ruling planet being in retrograde? So I will, I will answer that, but there's an answer I want to give before. There's something I want to say before that. I never like when we assign negative connotations to anything that happens in nature. I find that off-putting because I don't believe that nature by design is, is good or bad, it just is. 
And so when things happen, like, you know how we give all these crazy names to like weather events on earth. And they're like, Ooh, that was a, that was a bomb cyclone. And I'm like, actually, it was just a high speed, low pressure. That's what it is. <laughs> it's not a bomb cyclone. It's a high speed, low pressure. <laughs> and so, but bomb cyclones is scary. You know, so the first thing I'll say is there is nothing nefarious about the pathway of the of the of the worlds around the sun. This is just the way that they are. And so let's not assign negativity to them. Let's just see what they can tell us about us. That's that's my first thing. The second thing I would say is, is that when you know that your ruling planet is about to enter a retrograde period, take it for what it is, an opportunity to reassess and to rethink and to kind of sit still for a moment and meditate. If you are a meditating type person, this is a retrograde is a perfect time to do that. If you're someone who likes to enjoy deep breaths, like getting up early in the morning and just kind of sitting still, perfect time to do that. Um, so to me, when the planets are in retrograde, that's what I use them for. It's an opportunity to reassess, to think, to plan, and to be observant. Because what you can do is you can say, is, is it really Mercury in retrograde or, or am I blaming something that occurs on a regular basis on the fact that my ruling planet is in retrograde? Because I think that we can fall into that, that particular trap as well. Um, now, you know, I believe astrom astronomy and astrology, so I, I'm not, I'm not cutting each, I'm not, I'm not saying that neither one of them don't have, uh, uh, what's the word, weight, <laughs> but I do think that sometimes we blame things too much on the retrogrades, and Mercury in particular has taken a beating, literally and figuratively, and so let's, I would like to see people kind of let that part of it go. I'm here for having others to blame. <laughs> But I think that is um, a point well taken. I think sometimes it's easy to blame people, places, things for our mess, <laughs> stars, planets, all of it. But at the same time, I like the idea of that you mentioned of just kind of a period of rest and being still. Um, I think that that I, probably that's my biggest takeaway and just being a little bit more aware and alert. When is your ruling planet in, in retrograde? I actually did not look it up. I can mm. do that, uh, but I have I have not checked. I don't um, I I don't feel particularly bothered by the retrogrades, and so I don't I don't really feel it. Or maybe I do and don't realize that that's what it is. So one last thing mm -hmm. I'll say. So as you know, and as probably become clear to our listeners at this point, I'm super into this sort of stuff. But the retrogrades are like my least of all the things I have an interest in when it comes to astrology, I find the retrogrades to be kind of boring. So I, 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 I'm fascinated that so many people love that because to me, of all the things we could talk about about astrology, that's not in my top 12. Well, we are going to <laughs> definitely sprinkle your top 11 throughout this podcast so that you can get into the things that make your toes tingle because <laughs> I know. So for our listeners, stay tuned for more uh, Worldwide Webster. <laughs> That's what I'm calling um, it. Before we leave this topic, did you catch the, the Ring of Fire eclipse that was earlier this week? I did not. Is that what you sent me a picture of? I didn't send it to you, but I may have posted it to some of my accounts if you follow me. So yeah, there was a there was a an eclipse this week, um, a ring of fire. A ring of fire means that the sun is not completely blocked out by the moon from our perspective here on Earth, but it is mostly blocked out and you can see the red ring around it. 
uh, around the moon, hence the ring of fire. Um, it is a it is a another way of saying that it was a partial solar eclipse. Um, and that was uh, that took place earlier in the week. And so yeah, it was early in the morning, I believe in North America, if it was, uh, if you could see it from North America, it was like, it was before eight o'clock. Um, but yeah, that was a thing. I'd be missing the moons and the things, um, the pink one that happened, <laughs> the full ones occasionally. Um, I am going to be more alert. I feel like it's after the fact when somebody's like, oh, did you catch? And I'm like, ah, shit, I was asleep. But I am... Uh, I am also just very curious. And so I am, I am committed to learning more. And again, there will be more worldwide Webster segments. That's literally what I'm going to call it. You're welcome. I always think about, so this is the last thing I'll say and then we can go on because this is about flat earthers. You know, there's a, there's a group of people called flat earthers. They believe the earth is flat. Every time, every time I think about them, I think about the eclipses and I'm like, but we can see the shadow and it's round. <laughs> like, 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 up. literally, <laughs> look up. <laughs> that is a whole thing. <laughs> anyway, I will be tweeting out some resources this week on, on both retrograde and the eclipse, since um, some of you may not have seen it. And so read up, happy to share. And we will return to this topic, particularly we're going to do an episode on the Zodiac mm -hmm. at some point, which we'll do a much, uh, much more in-depth on all, all of the signs. And did you know there used to be 13 signs, but now there's 12? I did not know that, but I am very clear that oh, I am yeah. a Capricorn through and through. We'll get into it. The reason, well, I'm just going to say this now because I've already teased it. They took out the 13th sign because of, it didn't fit uh, neatly into the 12 months. And so they wanted the Zodiac calendar to fit, to, to like lay on top yeah. of the of the other calendar. And that's why they eliminated the 13th house, but it that does exist. Completely <clears throat> makes sense. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I cannot wait to dive into that. But again, Capricorn through and through. <laughs> Moving on. On June 5th, the world marked 40 years since the first five cases of what later became known as AIDS were officially reported. In all the fields, we'll discuss where we've been, what we know now, and where we're headed with our first pandemic. HIV 40 years later. First of all, I can't believe that it's, mm, I'm not gonna say I can't believe, it's interesting to think about 40 years um, and the fact that yeah, HIV has been around my entire lifetime. So like entire in, in most of yours, um, not saying you're old, but older than me. <laughs> <laughs> but when we think about, and then the fact that, so, you know, I was, I was talking to the husband recently and I was like, wow, we were like living during a pandemic, like we were talking about COVID and like our kids, like the world, the, the words and the knowledge that they have around COVID, right? And he and I were just having this whole conversation about what it's been like, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, but wait a minute. When, when, we were, when I was preparing for this episode, I was like, no, like we have lived um, through, lived through HIV. Again, my, my whole life, uh, most of the husbands, um, thinking and reflecting on, you know, when I first heard about it or really had an understanding. Um, and even then, I guess, similar to what my kids are experiencing now, um, seeing, getting 
shit, public health <laughs> words and ideas and terminology that I didn't realize was public health and until now, I guess. Um, but yeah, 40 years is, is, is a long time. Um, when did you first hear or about HIV? I remember growing up in the, I don't know if you remember this because I'm, as you've mentioned a couple of times now, I'm a little bit older than you are. Just a I smidge. Think in the 80s, I want to say, I want to say 1986 or somewhere in there. It may have been 88, 86 or 86 or 88. They sent a little pamphlet to every household in America. I think it was called AIDS in America or something like that. I will, I will Google it. And you know what? I'm going to Google it right now. They sent this little pamphlet to everybody's household and everybody got it. This was when they were still trying to do some education around just basic HIV knowledge. And so they decided, the government decided, let's send every household in America this pamphlet. And I remember us getting it. And, and that was kind of like the first time that I heard anything about it. My, I grew up around a lot of misinformation around HIV, which I know would not surprise, well, probably doesn't surprise anybody, but particularly doesn't surprise you and I, because, you know, I grew up in a, in a black, um, uh, Christian, um, uh, culturally conservative environment. I say culturally conservative because, you know, we're all Democrats. We were very liberal on that vein. But when it came to things like gay folks and and all and, and stuff like that, we were we were as conservative as the conservatives <laughs> or my family was. And so when I say culturally conservative, that's what I mean. And so these things were all taboo because there was I wasn't expected to be having sex to begin with. And I certainly wasn't expected to be having sex with boys or or men. And so and so and so my family was like, why do we need to talk about HIV? Because A, you're not having sex and B, you're not gay because we don't do that. <laughs> so there's, there's no reason for you to know this. Because remember mm -hmm. in, in the 80s, a lot of, it was it, the first group that really suffered were white gay men. Mm -hmm. And so that put us on this pathway of believing that you were immune if you weren't a white gay man, because they were like, oh, well, that's in the white gay man community. They doing drugs, they shooting up, they, they, they doing all that. We don't do all that. That's never going to, that's never going to come to our doorstep. Right. You and I know that that's not how social diseases work mm -hmm. that there, there there are in fact gay people of color there are in <laughs> fact there are in fact people of color who do drugs mm -hmm. <laughs> you know who all knew? the things these white folks are doing and getting away with we just do and get locked up for so it's, it's still happening <laughs> anyway um so this this idea that we don't need to be concerned about this because that's the other mm -hmm. um that put us on the pathway of what really created um these these two Americas, because what happened was because it started with the white gay community, they were the first to become the activists. Right. They were the ones in ACT UP. They were the ones with these coffin. Bianca, they would go to the Congress. They would get in coffins and, and do demonstrations of to, to demonstrate how many people had died. They were like, you will give us money for drugs. You will. This is what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And those... And I'm not going to say that it, there wasn't people of color involved in that movement because there were, but it was it was largely white gay men because those were the people that were visibly yeah. being seen as the ones impacted. What that created was was in their communities they they developed 
um, access to healthcare, to medicine, to information and education. And so then that was the front lines of it. And so then when, when we finally understood what we were dealing with, because remember it was grid before it was, yep. before it was AIDS, it was gay related, you know, deficiency. Um, and then they realized, oh, it's not just gay folks, it's anybody. So then it became HIV. So my point is that by the time the nineties rolled around, white gay men kind of had a handle on it, but it had already gotten into the black community and Pose documents this extraordinarily well. But we were behind the curve to a great extent. Like if you weren't involved in that ACT UP movement, then you were in this, you were in this pool of people thinking, oh, this isn't us. This isn't going to be something that's gonna happen to us. Mm -hmm. And I remember Bianca, I can vividly remember straight black women thinking, oh, well, we don't have to be concerned with this. Like yep. this is something that gay folks need mm -hmm. to be concerned with. So if I'm married and I have a husband and whatever, then I'm in the clear. That could not have been further from the truth for a, for myriad reasons. <laughs> I'm wondering if when you think back, you think that it would have been any different had this started in communities of color? Or do you feel like, you know, Black folks would have always gotten the short end of the stick, whether it started with them or, or migrated to them later? So I agree that, so I think short end of the stick, perhaps, because one of the things that I remember having a conversation with my mom about a long time ago, maybe it was an article that she read that once HIV cases were more greatly impacting Black and Brown communities, that's when the money and the fundraising and those things started to dwindle down. Those, um, that wealthy white gay coin <laughs> started to, um, started to, to disappear. And so, um, oddly enough, when I was... I guess, introduced to HIV or just hearing about it. It was for me mid nineties and it was only um, within the black community. So my mother, um, my mother, oh, Doreen, <laughs> she has always had um, a very open and welcoming and fluid group of friends. Like she will tell you since Brooklyn in the 80s okay um but so it was introduced to me when a lot of her, when she was hearing more and more about her um black gay male friends who were dying and she was you know going to funerals often and I didn't at this at the time I was young and not quite understanding um until it really continued to get closer and closer to us. So when my godfather, when he was diagnosed in the mid nineties, um, I was like, oh, okay. And she explaining to me what, what HIV was. And, um, and she even admits, although they were very close that like when he came to visit, like she was a little worried. She was a little, you know, not fully understanding transmission. Right. But at the same time, knowing that this is family and we're taking care of family. Um, and then that leading up to when a really close friend of ours um, had passed away, I was 17 and being, um, and that was 2000 or like 99. And so being in the hospital with him, but even his whole own family, black, um, not wanting to visit or not wanting to touch him or just all of that as he was passing away. So um, I didn't know of, I didn't know uh, positive white gay men, right? Like all I knew were um, 
were black gay men, um, black trans women that my mother knew that had passed away and family wanted them buried as a male when they lived their life as as females. So just hearing just hearing those stories and experiencing that. Like I said, that was like mid 90s for me. But I think it even in high school, um, and I went to a predominantly white high school in the suburbs outside of Chicago, we had an AIDS awareness council. So we had a club that was like about HIV and, and AIDS awareness. How progressive was that? I fucking um, love it. <laughs> you better have an AIDS awareness council. And I was part and we did the AIDS walks in Chicago and, and we went and educated folks and had conversations and I was going to the health department and getting condoms and passing them out to my friends. So in outreach and prevention before I even really knew what it was. Right. But I think, um, but yeah, going back to just that shift, if, it, if HIV would have started, um, in our communities, or I should say would have been, if the cameras and the press would have been in our communities. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to see or to know if there would have been that same rallying, that same act up, that same, you know, if it were initially five black gay men who, who had grid or this disease that they didn't understand, what would that look like? I kind of feel like if it had started with with five uh, black gay men, it would have just been swept under the rug for even longer. I mm. mean, if you remember Bianca, the Reagan administration, it took Oof. them forever to acknowledge what was even happening. It yep. took the president, I think, almost to the end of his term, which ended in 1989. I think it was mm -hmm. it was either 88 or 89 before he even got around to giving a speech on AIDS. At that point, it had been going on for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. So, and this was when it had started in a white community. So, if it had started in communities of color, I think it would have just prolonged the acknowledgement of what was happening. That's an Isaiah view. I remember growing up, this is how, the, how, how deep the ignorance goes. I remember growing up, I don't remember how old I was, but I had to have been younger. This was in the 80s. I remember growing up thinking that just the act of having um, gay sex, I'm using my air quotes, folks can't see me, anal intercourse. I thought mm -hmm. that that's what created HIV. That's how, mm -hmm. that's how unaware I was. And yeah. that's how uneducated I was about it because because of the things that I would hear both about gay people and about HIV, I was like, oh, so if I do that, that's how I'm gonna get HIV. The, <laughs> looking back on it now, I'm like, that, that's not, that makes no sense. <laughs> that's not how, it's not how viruses work. Ugh. But I say that to say this, Bianca, the lack of education that was going on in my family, in my neighborhood, in my community, in my church, it was so, mm -hmm not there, mm -hmm. that that's what I was left with. It wasn't until until I, I learned outside of my family circle, outside of my community, outside of my church, the facts. Yes. And that's the problem, is that I feel like had that been reversed, we, we, as a, we as a broader community would be much, much, much better off. You know, I don't know how, I don't know how deeply you get into like these popular figures that have that have that either living with HIV now or or once did there's three people that come to mind for me Magic Johnson because I remember That's, that coming out Magic Johnson is one of them <laughs> mm -hmm. Ryan White is one of them and mm -hmm. Pedro Zamora is one of them yes so so I yeah. think that everyone knows Magic Johnson and I remember when that so that when that happened mm -hmm. that was more of an inflection point for my mom's generation because I felt like they could really identify with him because Magic is not 
as far as I know, because I don't know him personally. He's not a gay man, as far as I know. Like he is, he is, I believe, and I'm saying I'm, as far as I know, because I don't know, I don't know his life. <laughs> I believe he identifies as straight. And I believe that he, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, B, that he he contracted it through heterosexual content contact. And that's been a little bit fuzzy because he doesn't really go into a whole lot of detail about it. He does that. not. So <laughs> but that is but that is what has always been out there, yes. The point I'm trying to make is that I feel like when he caught it, he was a uh, quote-unquote masculine figure Mm -hmm. leading a quote-unquote conventional life Mm -hmm. that everyone knew, particularly the Black community, and he was relatable to a group of people in a way that that, that other folks weren't relatable. So that was that. You want to talk about magic before you get to the other two? (laughs) No, but I just remember when, you know, I remember when he came out about his status. I also remember kind of like... Um, I don't know, just the extra wiping down and cleaning of the basketball court that he was on and fear of him sweating on folks and just shit that we know now, we know better. <laughs> I remember I remember the denial about, well, he doesn't look sick and he's been living this long and does yes. he really have it? Like, yes. I remember that. Because we were also bombarded with all of the um, you're going to die, this is what AIDS looks like posters mm-hmm. of- And of, he didn't look like any of that. Exactly. So we saw- you know, wasting and we saw people looking very sick or we saw lesions and that kind of thing. So we're like, no, magic, magic don't got it. Or the other thing was, oh, magic paid for a cure. That's the other uh, (laughs) myth that's always been in these streets. We always got cures in these labs, supposedly. And I don't know, where does that stuff come from? Like, whatever. Anyway, so that was one. The other one was Ryan White. Mm -hmm. So for those of you unfamiliar, Ryan White was a a boy in Indiana, a white boy in Indiana, mm-hmm. who had gotten HIV through a transfusion, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. And somehow the school found out and they wouldn't let him go to school because mm-hmm. they were afraid that he would he would somehow infect his, you know, his classmates. Right. The only thing that Ryan ever asked for, and I, I don't remember how young he was, Bianca. I want to say, do you remember the age? He was under 10, right? Less than 10 he was very when it started. Yeah. Eight years old, somewhere in mm-hmm. there. The only thing Ryan wanted was to go to school. That's that was his only ask. And he was being prevented from the by the local school board and the and the governments to go to school. They transferred him to another school. It was this big old thing. Mm-hmm. What struck me about that was, you know, he was completely innocent. He got this this disease through no fault of his own. Mm-hmm. You know, and his only ask, he wasn't asking for acceptance. He wasn't asking for people to to love him. He just wanted to go to school. And I thought that that was relatable because I feel like any child at that age, that's all they want. They just want to be a kid. Yeah. And so for me, that was really relatable. They later passed the Ryan White Care Act, which mm-hmm. is the which is the payer of last resort for people who are living with HIV when they need care in his honor after his death. And he became kind of like this bigger than life figure yeah. and kind of like the face at the time. Now, I, I like Ryan White because I can identify with his story, but I will say this, Bianca. He became the poster child for HIV because he was palatable to the white masses. He was a white, he was a handsome white kid Mm -hmm. who wasn't gay, who wasn't a drug addict. And so Mm -hmm. this was, this was a perfect person that wasn't going to be offensive to people Mm -hmm. and right, wrong or indifferent. His image was helpful to the movement because had he been from the wrong side of the tracks, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. had he been 
um, doing drugs or whatever other, all these other things that we put onto people, then that would have, he would not have been as useful to Absolutely. the HIV AIDS movement in, in moving us forward. And so while I appreciate Ryan and I understand how valuable his image was to getting us over that hump, it is problematic that it had, it had to be a, a, a lily white, completely innocent, whatever white kid from Indiana of all places. Remember, not from LA, not from New York, from right. Indiana. Mm-hmm. Middle all of, of the, these things middle of the world. <laughs> for the perfect picture of, oh, this is Americana, so let's all get behind this. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. A- a- period. <laughs> we don't need to say no more about that. Because no, we, no, we, we like Ryan White, I think. We don't. We do. <laughs> and so then the third one for me is Pedro Zamora. I so on the, I think it was what the second season or was it the third season of the real world? It was very early. So maybe second or third season. So Pedro was a Latino gay man. Mm-hmm. He was the first person that was living with HIV to kind of come out as such on a reality TV program that I'm aware of. And now if there was someone before Pedro, I acknowledge that I, that's my ignorance. And so I know we have people that listen and like to, to send us emails, send me an email on that if I'm incorrect. Mm-hmm. But he was on The Real World. This was the San Francisco cast. This was the same cast that Puck was on, that oh, disgusting Jesus. individual <laughs> and some other folks. Um, I just loved Pedro. He had a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. He was brave and 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 he passed away right, I think it was either right before or right as the as the drugs were really becoming, the antiretrovirals were really becoming a thing. So he couldn't really take advantage of those because his disease progression was such that by that point it, it was it was too late for him. He kind mm-hmm. of just missed it because as Bianca knows, and, and some of our listeners may know, in 1996, they introduced a new class of, of drugs that have really prolonged the life of, of folks living with HIV so that it's now a chronic illness and not necessarily something that people die from rather quickly. But Pedro, right. as someone who, who was living with HIV at the beginning of the 90s, he just, you know, he just missed those, that, that medication kind of like modernization. Mm-hmm. But he was... I can remember him vividly to this day. And that was, that was 30 years ago. And I never met him. I just watched him on TV. Exactly. And I think that was the first time we watched and saw and experienced because I remember, oh, I remember that season so much when him and his boyfriend, Sean, when they, when they got married, like, I remember all of those things when the other cast member, I can't remember her name, but I think she was a doctor. Um, and she was, and I, and I was like, okay, yes, but kudos to MTV for, you know, making that because she was also helping him when he was sick and like all of that. And I didn't know, I didn't realize until now, like literally this very moment, just like Googling, he was 22 years old when he, when he died. So now when we think about, when we talk about how far, um, HIV has come and we talk about treatments, et cetera. Like now the idea of um, someone receiving an HIV diagnosis at whatever young age and passing away at 22 seems absurd. Like people are living um, for a very long time, manageable, et cetera. Um, but yeah, Pedro was in our home. Like at that point, we all knew somebody um, who, you know, who, was was positive and um and relatable he was a a young uh just yeah what what i loved about him was he wasn't preachy he was very mm-hmm. authentic he was he wasn't um in any way uh he had every reason to be resentful and angry and bitter mm. and yet he wasn't 
And I think that that is what really struck with me. And I feel like what really struck with a lot of people, because that was a fucked up situation for a 20 year old to be dealing with. He shouldn't have had to deal with it. There should have been a, a much more of a collective response, both from the government and just from people in general. Like when humanity is suffering, there should be a response mm-hmm. that is automatic. And so when faced with all of that trauma and discrimination, in my opinion, he had every reason to be bitter and resentful, mm-hmm. but he wasn't. Of all the people on that cast, he was mm-hmm. the most hopeful. He was the, the most uh, mm-hmm. empathetic and he was facing the end of his life. And it was, it was just, it's just, he was just an amazing person. And you could, and it really came through yeah. the camera um, in a way that I thought, again, I remember him to this day. And so as, as, as he was a gay man, he was a gay man of color. English was mm-hmm. not his first language. There were so many things about Pedro that was important for it to be mm-hmm. in the public realm. And so just like, just like, uh, Ryan White was palatable for all of those white folks in in the in the eighties. Uh, Pedro was one of those people that I think was very important for people of color to see and hear from mm-hmm. in the early nineties because I think he set the stage for a lot of folks having the courage to confront what was happening either to them, to their family members, chosen or otherwise, or to their Agreed. communities. Agreed. I think it's it's you know I've. I work in public health, specifically in HIV, and I have for the past strong 18 years. Um, So being able to, the stories, child, if I could tell you about a young Bianca with her condom kits and basket on her hip, walking through the streets of DC, but not not today. Um, (laughs) But I am also proud and hopeful when I think about how far how far we've come when we talk about treatment when we talk about um, prep or pre-exposure prophylaxis when I when we talk about even just the technology the testing technology right I will never forget my first HIV test having to wait a strong two weeks for results okay now it's absurd when you think about it now it's a it's a couple minutes (laughs) and 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 you leave with more information than you received um so much so that it has um the access it's more accessible folks are able to test in their homes now if if people didn't know that you can like there are there are options and so i am grateful to be in this work I guess on this side of it, although I can't even count how many people I've I've given a positive or or a preliminary positive result to, um, and how that weighed on me for a long time, and that's why I had to move out of testing because it was I was taking that home that that's that's energy and I was carrying it with me, um, strangers and people I knew right, and so now I have a. A, a different understanding, more so on the care and treatment side. Um, but I know how far we've come and how far we still need to go because stigma is still a thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bianca knows this. I've worked in HIV for 20 years. I, I also did counseling and testing in the early part of my career. And when you have to sit down and tell a 16-year-old mm-hmm that they ha- are living with HIV, that's the kind of shit you never, never forget. And I'm just going to say that and mm-hmm. leave it right there. It is some of the hardest things I have ever mm-hmm. had to do. I can remember 
You know, it's it's interesting because I can I can think of the who, I can remember the names. Um, it's also on, on the flip side, though, it is also um, wonderful and hopeful to see them living and thriving and doing um, and doing well. And then you know, times where I had very young clients, and by the time at that point I was in case management, by the time I was meeting them, T-cells of 23. I will never forget the first time I had a very young person with a T-cell of 23. And and when I met him, he was in a nursing home, like he was in rehabilitation, like all of that. Um, And then to see him again six months later, living, thriving, doing exceptionally well. Again, medication, supports, um, Ryan White, (laughs) literally, (laughs) shout out to Ryan White, Um, you know, and and programs and services. But at the same time, do you think that we have gotten, because HIV is um, manageable, do you think that folks are I don't know. I don't think lax, maybe lax is not the word, but do you, because it is not in our face in the way that it was before, because we are not seeing the scary posters of AIDS looks like this. And um, do you think that, that people are forgotten or, or, or not taking it as seriously? I don't know that people are forgotten, but once the immediate threat of death is removed from the table, it changes the way that people think about things. And so again, in the eighties, you know, there were gay men who were going to funerals every week, literally every week. That's not an exaggeration. And so when you're going to funerals every week to bury your friends, I can't even imagine the level of trauma that that inflicts upon you. But then you fast forward to now where you hardly even, you can't, the the visible signs of HIV are so removed from our society now that you don't see it. And once you don't visibly see it, then it's out of sight, out of mind, I think is the way that I think about it. And it's like people, they don't see it anymore. They don't see people, they don't see what they think they can see as the visible signs. They don't see the funerals. They don't see the obits. And so it's out of sight, out of mind. I think what is far more troubling to me, Bianca, is that we have had great medical advances, but we still see a lot of uh, disproportionate uh, engagement. And by that, I mean PrEP. Every one of my white male gay friends are swallowing these pills and good for them. I'm swallowing them myself. So I'm not trying to, I'm not, you know, throwing anybody under the bus. I'm not trying to like shade people for taking care of themselves. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Not all of my gay men's of, uh, gay male friends of color are swallowing these pills. And that's their choice. I'm not, people can decide for themselves what they want to do. But it's an interesting commentary that that is true seemingly across the board. In white communities, they got access, mm-hmm. they're taking their prep, you know, doing what they need to do. And in black communities, I hear, oh, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I can't, can I trust this? And, mm-hmm. and all of these other things. And I understand that because I used to be there myself. But we have got to figure out a way to see the uptake in communities of color in the same way that we have in white communities because we because the technology is there the Absolutely. science is there the medication is there so we need to get people to do it and then we need to make sure that they don't have to pay out of pocket or they know 
what their options are, because sometimes people don't know that they don't have to pay out of pocket for it. And so they would be willing to take it, but they're like, but I don't have any money for that. I don't even have insurance. Okay, well, let me sit down with you for the next 15 minutes and explain to you what your options are. And so there's a lot of work to be done in that arena. And for those who don't know, PrEP is a medication that people who are HIV negative can take um, daily in order to prevent um, contracting HIV. So for folks who don't know, I mean, we we were in this world. <laughs> so we know we will be tweeting about it this week. <laughs> yeah, because you're absolutely right. Not only not only that, well, when we talk about communities of color, a lot of my quote unquote heterosexual friends, <laughs> black, brown, have never heard of PrEP or don't understand. I think there is more. What I will say is I am now seeing more advertisement um, commercials um, around PrEP that feature or that have, you know, the black and brown folks. So I said, okay, like I see where we're, where we're doing here. Um, but that should be, but those are, could, should also be conversations in your doctor's office as well. Is your doctor talking to you about PrEP? Is your doctor even talking to you about your sexual, your sex? Oh we need to return to this into a whole episode on the engagement that we're having with the healthcare. Cause I mean, let's face it in America, the healthcare system is fucking bullshit. <laughs> and are, are, are they even having engagement with their doctor regularly? And do they have a doctor that they trust enough to talk about certain things? I mean, we could go on and on. Actually, we will need to do an episode on that. Cause I want to- We will, go ahead, add, that. Throw, throw that in your arc. <laughs> I think this has been, um, I think especially COVID uh, has really, um, has brought back a lot of memories of, of the early days of HIV and AIDS. When we talk about folks here one day and, and gone the next. And like you said, people going to funerals every week. We saw that this past year, people all in the same household. Very good point. Who um, were in the hospital and then they weren't. Just so, so losing loved ones very quickly, just, just really eye-opening. Um, and that in itself, you know, is, is re-traumatizing for folks who are living with HIV or who lived, again, through that same early period of the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, when we were seeing a lot of the same thing. And at the helm of it, um, of, of both uh, epidemics and pandemics, is our lovely Dr. Fauci. You know, we're always... Indeed. <laughs> You know, uh, Anthony Fauci has been at the helm of NIH for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is the HIV is how Bianca and I know of him. But I will say, I tweeted out this, there's a great New Yorker article about him. He wasn't always as woke as I think he is now. Like the HIV activists really did open Dr. Fauci's eyes um, on some things in the late 80s. And he acknowledges that he's come a long way in, 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 in a lot of ways in credit to them. And so... I think that that is another thing that that the folks in the HIV AIDS advocacy community can take pride in is that they were really able to get him to see some of the things that he wasn't able to see even from his vantage point. Dr. Fauci took care of some of the very first people in 1981 that were living with HIV and even still, even with that experience, he acknowledged that later on in that decade, he wasn't seeing it with a full set of eyes and that it took activists to really make him see it. And Bianca, that says so much. When you are a scientist and a physician as brilliant as he, when you literally took care of the first patients that were living and dying with AIDS, when you can still say, I learned from people in the community who came to me and said, you need to look at it this way, 
it took my breath away. And he is, um, and, and we said it earlier, unfuckwittable. <laughs> he, he knows, you know, he knows his stuff. And, and again, has grown and, and, and listen. And I think this really, it's, it's just, it's amazing to me how, you know, we have approached COVID and it looks very similar to the way that we have approached HIV, even with the contact tracing. It's like, man, we were doing that in the early days of HIV testing and counseling when we were like, okay, write down your, write down your partners. How can we find them? What do we need to do? And so um, in a way, history is repeating itself in a very odd way, but sheesh. Um, as we now have vaccines for COVID and the world is opening up a little bit, what do you think is, is next for HIV? What does a world free of new HIV infections look like as we try to end the epidemics? I think scientists are continuing to work on a cure. I don't know if, you know, now that HIV is so manageable and you can live 40, 50 years, you know, on the medications that we have and the medications continue to get better, you know, you can live basically a normal lifespan, even with HIV. So I don't know that a cure is really how necessary is that given that we've now, you know, prevented people from dying from it. So that's a, that's a philosophical debate that we can have as a group of people, but I think they're still trying to figure out what the sweet spot is between, you know, giving people a good quality of life for a normal lifespan versus trying to cure a virus that maybe we don't need to cure that we can just, we can contain. I think that that's where the biggest debate in HIV is going to be. And then I think the other point is, is that, you know, I am someone who takes PrEP. It's an everyday thing. I think we can maybe talk about getting to where I can take it once a week, once a month, quarterly. I think Mm -hmm. that's definitely going to be in the next 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. That is an excellent Um, that's an excellent point. The, the advancement again, science, you know, we like science over here. Um, (laughs) the medications are getting better treatments, options, et cetera. Um, so we are just, I am just, I think I am hopeful. I want everybody to at least to know about PrEP. I want everybody to know about what their options are. I want everybody to know how to access testing. You're not cautiously optimistic. I know hey, we're not there yet, but I feel like that would have been a good little time. Um, no, because I am very optimistic. Very good. <laughs> when it comes to the things. Shall we move to Gotta Do? Wait, hold on. Why are you rushing me? Yes, we will. But I do want to close out this segment and say that uh, 40 years has um, is is a long time and so much has happened in that time. But I think I'd be remiss if, you know, we didn't say um, thank you to the to the activists, the people who um, made their voices heard, who supported their families who were sick, who, uh, despite stigma, loved um, their friends and their neighbors and cared for those and they're still caring for people now. So thank you. And thank you to our ancestors for bringing us this far. Um, so for this next segment, you got to lay down. <laughs> you, got, you literally, you got to lay down and listen to this <laughs> next segment because what you got to do this week is rest. Now I have a question. So they, we need to give them a moment to lie down, but if they're in a space where lying down isn't an option, is there, can they close their eyes and pretend they like they're lying close down? Them. Or do we need them to get on the ground? Lay, right down. Now lay down. 
wherever you are, unless you're like driving. Cause I know folks who listen to us while we're, <laughs> when they're on the road, we, Ward Webster is not responsible <laughs> for whatever shenanigans occur. <laughs> but what we are saying is uh, you have to rest unapologetically. I appreciate this movement um, towards rest. I think there is now the shift that I am seeing that I love from just all of this grinding culture that we have embraced for a whole long time. You know, Diddy was like, sleep when you're dead. No, rest. (laughs) I am here for it. I have been, um, thanks to, again, our sister friend, Rosie, who had put me onto the nap ministry. Um, Just just love it. And the Bishop of the Nat ministry right now, her name escapes me, but I just want to read this, this little, this quote real quick from an interview that she did um, with NPR about the Nat ministry. And she says, I'm doing the Nat ministry. It's rest, it's resistance, it's reparations. You can lay down. You've done enough. This is a connection to our ancestors. This is a pushback against capitalism. A lot of people would start crying. People would look at me with like a tilted head and be like, wow, I've never thought of that. But yes, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I would love to lay down. You know, this is a racial and social justice issue. You know, sleep deprivation is a justice issue because it's been traced all the way back during slavery. Slavery was a horrific time. And during those times for Black people, we were human machines. And so grind culture continues today to try to attempt to make us all human machines and not to see the divinity of who we really are. And so rest is disrupting that history. It is undoing the part of that history. And it is allowing us to connect to our deepest selves. When I read that, I said, well, shit, let me go lay down. And so the whole mission and kind of uh, purpose behind the NAM industry is, is rest as a form of resistance, because we have always been taught that you have to work, 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 literally, just to, to be a machine. If you don't, you are lazy, you are not enough, you ain't shit, like all of those, those capitalistic ideals that we believe and swallow. And so... Ugh, rest. And I think about that when I think about like my family and my aunts and uncles who as long as I've known them have had multiple jobs and have always been, you know, always been going. My mother had uh, a history of, of brain aneurysms and literally one ruptured while she was at work. She was working six days a week while she was at work. So what could her life have looked like if she rested or was allowed to rest or some folks don't even feel worthy of it. Like just to be still, um, I think for me, I statement and, and I'm doing better. But for a long time, like if I were still or not doing anything, I would be like, wait, feeling like I'm not enough, but I should be doing, but I need to, and I, what, a, you know, it, no, lay down, lay down. Why do you think we're so resistant to it? Because I think that in our culture, um, not doing something is viewed as a waste of time mm. or a negative. So one of uh, one of the things I love to do on vacations is absolutely nothing. 
I like to lay on a beach. I like to sit around. I like to, the idea that doing nothing is restful to me and I feel great doing it. I have friends who, when we go on vacation, which is supposed to be about rest, they are up at eight o'clock. They got something to do at 8.30 and they don't come back to, back to the hotel room until 8.30 at night. And I'm like, this is exhausting. <laughs> like I'm tired. Like that is, that is not to me what a vacation is. Like I don't have to be moving constantly to feel like I'm missing or, you know, that's just not me. Like to me, rest is central to, um, to rejuvenating myself. Whereas some people are just not like that. They feel like if they're not getting the absolute most out of the day, that somehow they're missing something or they're wasting time. So I think that that's, I think that's part of it for people in general. I think you spoke very eloquently about how people of color have conditioned themselves about this. And I think there's one other factor, this work factor we have, where you know, you're working five days a week, a minimum of 40. I'm gonna say a minimum of 40 because most people work more than 40 hours a week. Not to mention the, high, the side hustles and the other jobs. And again, the idea, like at, I think at most companies, Bianca, if you acknowledged that you needed to take an hour off in the middle of the day to have a nap, I think in most companies that would be frowned upon. You would not wanna share that with yep. your colleagues because that might prevent you from having upward mobility that might prevent you from a raise, et cetera, et cetera. You'd have to be in a very progressive organization to even acknowledge that you need a nap. Because again, then if, you, if you're saying you need rest, then that's seen as some sort of a deficiency. Oh, why are you not sleeping at night? Oh, what is your anxiety? Oh, what is your issue? Why mm -hmm. can't you work? 40 to 50 hours a week, like everyone else. So yeah. then it becomes, <laughs> that's, that, that's what it becomes, you know? And so the idea that you would prioritize your wellness mm. is, not, is not something that is particularly valued in our work culture. But we know that we don't value wellness anyway. <laughs> Like it really is about like, you know, there, there isn't a whole lot that is put into or efforts that are put into preventative measures, right? Like the money is made when people are not well, disease, et cetera. So the idea of supporting a culture that says rest when you need to rest in order to be able to function. There's, there are so much science behind it and rest could look like a lot of things like one. Yes, it could literally be a nap. Um, it could be a 20 minute walk. It could be closing your eyes. It could be meditation. It could be whatever you need to do to disconnect from the moment um, in order to be able to come back and recenter, but know that you've earned it. People are not using their leave, their vacation time, their PTO. They are not using it. And so I encourage everyone to use it, even if you are staying home to play with your big toe. My friend used to tell me that she has big toe days where she's like, I'm not doing nothing but laying in the bed and playing with my big toe today. And I'm like, yes, bitch, play with your arm. If nothing else, it's just the idea of you don't have to. Some is, folks. Is that a euphemism for something? Because when no. I. No. <laughs> you are just. It could, it could be that. Look, you said it. I just thought it. And I'm sure the listeners thought it too. I mean, we are reading a raunchy ass book this month. <laughs> that could also be, again, doing whatever, whatever <laughs> brings you joy. <laughs> but the idea of taking rest, taking that time off, also encouraging your team, whoever, 
take that time off without explanation. There have been so many times where me, myself, I've gotten worked up. Like I got to take this day off for an appointment and I'm giving my supervisor all of this information and I have to do this and this and this and this. Why? And I was like, the fuck? You don't have to give an explanation for what You don't. And why do we feel like we do? I've had folks who I've supervised are like, hey, I'm taking off the day because I, and I was like, no, 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 stop. I don't, I, because again, if you're taking off to, to play with your big toe, hell, if you were taking it off, taking off the day to go on another job interview, still your well, business. And, and, and the reason I don't want to hear it is because it, it has, it doesn't, I don't think of you in any, in any different light. I don't think more of you or less of you because you're taking a wellness day for yourself. So just save the explanation because it's not currying any favor because I don't care. Right. So I don't, it's not, it's not impacting you positively or negatively that you're taking the day off. So I don't need the explanation. Just all I need to know is you're not here today and I'll see you. Let me know when I'm going to see you again. And I trust that you're an adult, you're, you're doing your job and you need to take some time for yourself. That's really all I need to know. <laughs> Literally. I don't need all the explanations. I don't need you to, you know, once upon a time you take a, you were gone for three days or six days, then you have to bring in a doctor's note. And no, the fuck? like, why, why is that? I, I think it's because some people fear that, okay, if, if my, if my boss knows that I'm taking today off, they might think that I'm applying for a job and? or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, even if you, even if you were, you could come to me and say, I'm taking tomorrow off because I got this big job interview I'm excited about. I'm going to be like, good for you. I hope they pay you double what you're making here. Because at the end of the day, I want what's best. I want you to succeed. I'm invested in your success. That's why I hired you. <laughs> like, like, so, so I'm not going to think some kind of way about that. You know, it's not about me. We're, this isn't personal. This mm -hmm. is business. And so do, do what you got to do. And if you need my help to get you to the next you know, to the next step, mm -hmm. I can, I, I will even do that. But there's a lot of fear, a lot of people, and I don't know if because they've had bad experiences. Again, I don't know if it's because of our work culture. A lot of people feel like they can't be open and honest about if they're struggling with something, they just need a mental health day, mm -hmm. or they need a day to go take care of a sick kid, or they need a day to go do the job interview. Like, from both sides of it, it doesn't even matter. Like just, you're not there, you're not there, but all this angst that people build up behind their rationale and then they have yes. to, they feel like they gotta say something. Oh, what am I gonna yeah. tell my boss? You don't have to tell me anything. Just tell me you're not coming to work today and when you'll be back. People don't rest or take days off because just what you said, like there's this fear of the repercussions, whatever it may look like. If I take the day off, then when I get back, all this work is gonna be piled up or they're gonna think I'm doing this or my boss is gonna, all of that is null and void. Now, I do want to acknowledge um, you and I work in an office culture mm -hmm. where our work more or less, we can, we can plan out our workloads. I will say that some people work in places where they may be on their feet yeah. or their, their actual work has a direct impact on what they take home. Like if you wait tables mm -hmm. um, and you don't wait tables today, then you don't, you don't have, basically you've cut your, your income by a significant amount because you didn't wait any tables today. So I want to acknowledge that some people are in professions where they're not showing up will have adverse impacts on them getting more work or having income. So I do want to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. That previous statement I made was really more about us that are in this, in the privileged mm -hmm. ivory towers mm -hmm. and that there's no work that we're doing that can't wait a day or two. That's really what we're, what Bianca and I are talking about right here. No, absolutely. And I think we really saw that, again, through the pandemic, the idea of, of essential workers, right? And like people who had to come to work despite being in the middle of pandemonium. And so, and, and not 
and, and not being appreciated. So what I will say um, is if, if you can, right, um, rest, whatever that looks like, however you define it, you have, know that you have earned it. Know that if you take a nap, it is your nap and you are worthy <laughs> of that nap know that if you're taking that day off to play with your big toe or play with somebody else's big toe you have earned that too rest was our ancestors wildest dreams and i think in order to honor them and our folks rest when you can so before we do before i do the outro bianca insists on this periodic uh segment called yeah. cautiously optimistic so i'm gonna let her talk for a couple of seconds and then we're gonna get out of here <laughs> wait i gotta get my notes because you know i wrote them down real quick okay so again cautiously optimistic let me pan to the shirt boop we got merch is when you want to be excited but you know that all shit nanigans are possible this week bianca ward is cautiously optimistic about this new administration grocery store sushi, and Lauren Hill concerts. Cautiously optimistic with B. Ward. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I, I still don't understand like what this segment is. We've just the second time we've done it. And I don't know what we're supposed to do with that. Like as you just what, take what, it in. It makes you think <laughs> again, things you want to be excited about. But you know, <laughs> all shenanigans are possible. Take us out, Webster. <laughs> be sure, <laughs> be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Warden Webster for all of our latest updates and for our and for some of the things we've referenced on the show. We do have a YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and then to like the content. We'll be play, putting outtakes there, bloopers, and also some of our hot topic conversations. As we mentioned at the top of today's show, our June book club book <laughs> is my man's best, my man's mm. best friend by K.L. Collier. Grab a Get copy. Get into we'll it. Be discussing it. <laughs> Get into it. <laughs> enjoy yourself. We'll be discussing it the last Saturday um, of the month. And speaking of Saturdays, every Saturday morning, new episodes of this podcast, Warden Webster, will be released. And if you don't know where to go, just go to wardenwebster.com and we will direct you. But this podcast is available all places where fine podcasts are found. Literally, fine podcasts. <laughs> Wherever you listen, tell a friend, tell your neighbor, tell your cousins and now to listen to Warden Webster. I'm Isaiah Webster. And I'm Bianca Ward. We're out.